Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. Hi, Dr. Romer. Hi, Dr. Valente. How are you? I'm good. It's um, just about. We're very close to the end of our semester and just almost within striking distance of Thanksgiving. It's a good time to meet you and to talk about what we talk about, meaning our teaching, our research, our projects. Absolutely. Today, this is our penultimate um, episode of this year. So just eight months ago, we got together for the first time to start this podcast. And at the time, as you remember, in March, we didn't know how long we would be doing this for. And so here we are eight months later on episode number 24. And what has changed? So it's, you know, in lots of ways, if you put it that way, then our podcast become also a certain way a marker of that time, right? Yes, Absolutely. And so that makes you think about, okay, what is, you know, in this 2020, what has changed maybe us or the way how the Holocaust is relevant to us or not? Because, you know, we always say, you know, always remember never to forget. But the truth is that the way by which we remember and how we remember also says a lot about us. And that if our time changes or our sensibilities change, then it would be fair to say that um, the way we look back has also changed. And I think um, the one thing that probably is we all shared very strongly this year is that there was something that was taken from us, and that was the kind of certainty of the future. Mm-hmm. And that in many ways, we more and more became concerned about the day to, today and were less clear about what would lay ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And I think, in, you know, maybe... In not surprising ways, at least if I think about it in that way, the last you know big event that we held, Holocaust Remembrance, um, honoring the memory of Kristallnacht, we honored in a particular way, which kind of is almost in tune with that new time sensibility. Uh, we didn't go for the big historical review, Kristallnacht and what it was, but we went for a very particular, more fragmented way of thinking about Kristallnacht, thinking about it from the perspective of multiple voices and multiple different types of sources. And that, you know, is maybe not unlike how we nowadays kind of experience something which is quite global, certainly Mm -hmm. national, but in many ways also experiences not all of us in entirely exactly the same ways. Would you agree that there is a certain symmetry Absolutely. And I think this became really clear for us when we had the event um, on November 10th, where even one of our participants at the very end mentioned about how for the first time in one of our events, she really felt how this was so close to home and so intimate. Um, So even the way in which, you know, people who attend the events are reacting to the ways in which we have somehow changed our presentation oftentimes um, are also, you know, being 
able to gain this new perspective about this historical event that, of course, we were celebrating the 82nd anniversary of Kristallnacht. But even through the through the to the writings that were shared, through the voices that we relied on um, to talk about how people at that time um, in 1938, how they reacted to this massive violent event that happened in front of them and trying to make sense of it. So especially, you know, I shared the words of a young man. He was 14 years old when he wrote in his diary about the events that had happened the previous days. Um, And we can see, you know, this uncertainty, I think, for the first time, us in the 21st century are able to more keenly be drawn into this, this, you know, big unknown, right? If we look at history from not from hindsight, but if we take it into what was happening at the moment, I think we're now able to to really see it in a different way than we were before 2020. Maybe we can just hear, hear an excerpt from what you read at the event. November 11th, 1938. The past three days brought significant changes in our lives. On November 7, a German legation member was assassinated in Paris. He died two days later. The following day, on November 10, came the consequences. At 3 o'clock, the synagogue and the Jewish center were put on fire. Then they began to destroy Jewish businesses. During the morning, private homes also were being demolished. Fires were started at single homes belonging to Jews. At 6.30 in the morning, the Gestapo came to our home and arrested father and mother. Mother returned after about one and a half hours. Dad remained and was put in prison. In the morning, I went to the Fernsey home. Bobby was at the synagogue and at the youth center in the morning and saw how they burned. Later, we went to the daycare center where the children had been brought from the community home, which they had to flee during the night. We returned to our neighborhood by two o'clock. Not far from us, we saw a gang vandalizing a home, throwing things out of the window. When I went around the corner and looked up my street, there was nothing to see. It looked peaceful. I therefore returned directly to our home. When I turned into the front yard, I saw that the house was damaged. I walked on glass splinters. In the hallway, I met Frau Baum, who lived upstairs. I ran into our apartment and found unbelievable destruction in every room. It was the same in the apartment of the caretaker below us. Mother and grandmother were there. My parents' instruments were destroyed. The dishes were broken. The windows were broken. Furniture upturned. The desk was turned over. Drawers and mirrors were broken and radios smashed. The kitchen and the bathroom were untouched. The upstairs room also was left alone, including my father's cello. The cellar also was not disturbed. The apartment of the caretaker was in much worse condition. In the evening, mother brought gold and other valuables for safekeeping to Christian acquaintances. We wanted to spend the night at home, but the caretaker urged us to go to her relatives where we could spend the night. I read until late. In the middle of the night at 2.30 a.m., the stormtroopers smashed windows and threw stones against store shutters. After a few minutes, they demanded to be let into the house. Allegedly, they were looking for weapons. After they found no weapons, they left. 
After that, no one was able to go back to sleep. Everyone sat in one room. I tried, but I couldn't go back to sleep. After a while, I went back to where they were sitting and found they had dozed off. The time passed terribly slowly. Then we thought there was still another person in the house who was making noise. Finally, at 5 a.m., I saw a policeman outside who walked back and forth. I shall never forget that night. The next day, rumor had it that children under 16 of age would also be arrested. I wanted to flee and ride my bicycle to Christian friends of my parents who lived in the Rhineland. Mother objected, however, and I remained at home, of course. The next night, we all wanted to sleep at home, but we were too upset. At 9.30 at night, we went to the Cosmans, where the gangsters had already been at us. They had destroyed everything. We had calmed down somewhat and slept there quite well. Books could be written about all that had happened and about which we now begin to learn more. But I have to be careful. A new regulation was issued that the Jews in Germany have to pay 1 billion Reichsmarks for restitution. What for? For the damage the Nazis had done to the Jews in Germany. I shall return to that subject later. My room will stay as it is. I am not going to go to school as long as dad is not at home. I now want to go to Eretz Israel as quickly as possible, maybe with the first youth, Aliyah. The plan for making Aliyah was made some time ago. The Bund, of course, has come to a standstill. Its leaders were arrested. You know, I, it strikes me also, if, if you just go back again, what is It's not just the more fragmented um, nature in which an event like that is captured, in this case, on the, on the pages of a diary, but it really, um, and, and this is not, you know, that foreign to us any longer. Mm -hmm. it, it's very descriptive. You know, if you just you follow the words at first, it, it doesn't pass any meaning. It doesn't interpret. It doesn't create a canvas. It's almost like a you know, short, you know, camera shots of sorts. Mm -hmm. So that I think there's something to be said also about the magnitude of these events and how they, you know, almost shatter our ability to narrate them and how they force us into capturing in incomplete ways to the best of our abilities that which we see. And that I think is very much the purpose of your diarist, that it's just almost the pen is just, you know, recording of sorts as if the The camera lens is just, you know, open and closes, open and closes, open and closes. So that there is a some kind of relationship between the event, the observation, and its representation. And we see that, therefore, the if you compare that to, you know, what else we did, you know, the newspaper article from the New York Times was already a much more collected voice, right? Mm -hmm. It was pulled back, taking more of a distance more bird's eye view of sorts of what was happening. And so I think that's a really interesting um, issue to consider how much the representation of something um, alters also the, the means by which we, we kind of can, can go about it, in particular if it's an event of that magnitude of something that is, you know, in that case, engulfing all of the Jewish community, both in Germany and in Austria, in public and private, on the streets, in the homes, in the synagogues, in the shops, um, and virtually simultaneously. I mean, yes. that's what, you know, I think also added to that blow that it came everywhere 
almost at, at once at the same time. Absolutely. And even the part that you shared during the event, if you wanted to talk maybe a little bit about, you know, these uh, visualizations that you showed about the number of suicide rates that happen within the Jewish community. And, and what became so striking about what you were showing there is that we see that men, especially, you know, in their, I believe it was between 50s and 70s, were at the highest rate um, among those who took their own lives because of this event or, you know, in in, in in, in this moment where their whole world was really being shattered. Do you want to say maybe a few words about this? You know, again, I think, it, you know, if you think about uh, suicide, there's probably some nothing that is more of a very unfortunate individual choice, right? There's nothing yes. more tight to that person, that moment, um, and it's that specific. And so, therefore, the ways in which we normally look at that would be to to draw on the immediate context of that individual, him or her, his mm -hmm. life, his family, and so on and so forth. But if you see this preponderance of cases, then you realize that these highly individual choices were part of a wider pattern, right? Yes. And so that becomes then, I think, a big marker of a moment like that. And then, you know, through the work of our little digital team, mm -hmm. um, we were able then to say, okay, not only that it doesn't happen totally at random to individuals at different times, but but they all seem to be doing it almost at the same time, you know, during the same day, uh, but also disproportionately more men than women. Mm -hmm. There is a, a more communal, more, you know, perspective to these other individual choices. And I thought that was really interesting. And then we speculated why that was, and I, I, you know, and I think I might have conjectured a little bit in, in saying that for men, this was, you know, the final end of, of being able to be also, you know, in, inhabiting the roles that they had mm -hmm. been traditional accustomed to, the heads of households mm -hmm. with secure income, with a kind of status inside the house and outside of the house, mm -hmm. and therefore this blow would have come harder to them, whereas many of the women had more often than not been the voice at home at the dining table who had already early on advocated for leaving Germany. Mm -hmm. And so the men, in lots of ways, because this, these are traditional middle-class families, they had much harder times letting go of what they had and found it more difficult to envision you know, themselves in new countries where they're mm -hmm expertise, their learning would not be recognized. And I think all these things kind of come to bear on them that they feel that burden that they cannot quite literally carry any longer. Mm -hmm. You know, just as we in this event, we, we were remembering what was happening. I think what we also, you know, going back to your question about how things have changed in 2020, I think that now more than ever, we really start to see how taking history into account becomes more and more relevant in our day and time. Um, and so I also wanted to perhaps, you know, talk a little bit about this new podcast series that we will be doing this spring semester, uh, where we will be introducing this idea of a year at a time. Do you want to say a few words about this? Yeah, this is a really, you know, exciting new adventure. And it is exciting also because 
We have not been able to map this out. We don't really know exactly how it's going to come together, but it's built around the assumption that for every year of the Third Reich, we come together, you, me, and some of our students, uh, and decide on one single event that for us encapsulates really that year. And then we unpack it, not unlike Kristall, the remembrance of Kristallna from multiple perspectives, and record each of our conversations about that event as a podcast and then string together all of them eventually into one. And um, I think, again, it, it speaks to this idea that what history is might be changing. So if you, know, if you go back to traditional way of thinking about history in the 18th and 19th century, the historians mm. were often called the backward-looking prophets. In other words, history was seen as a you know looking back that would allow us to look forward and extend uh, mm -hmm. our view. And I think nowadays we are more often are confronted with this idea of thinking, well, that's the view of, of assessing something from hindsight. But how would this have been at the time? And I think, again, we are maybe now a little bit more attuned to this because we're in the middle of a pandemic. You said at the outset, well, when we started eight months ago, we didn't know that yeah. we would still be in the middle of all this now. In other words, what is more common now to, to an experience of, of ours at this moment is that it's really hard for us to gauge where exactly we are in this narrative, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, toward the end because the vaccine is in sight, or where are we? And I think if one approaches history in that perspective, then I think one might get closer to the confusing nature of these large-scale historical catastrophes as yeah. are unfolding to the contemporaries, because they didn't have the script to where this was yeah. going. They had to make sense out of what was in front of them mm -hmm. and interpret this to the best of their abilities and, and make choices on the basis of that. And I think... Yeah. If we get back into that and, and unpack it in that way, then maybe we also get to unpack again a little bit more of the agency of individuals, of their choices, um, right or wrong, well-conceived or poorly conceived. Um, and I think that's at the heart of that podcast, but also kind of reopening a little bit this otherwise often seen chapter as something where we know already everything, mm -hmm. and it's just an act of remembrance. Whereas I think here we want ourselves together, you, me, with our listeners, be put into a moment where we are really truly in a conversation mm -hmm. um, and, and, and kind of revisiting this from a slightly different perspective, mm -hmm. not quite yet knowing always at the beginning of the podcast where we're going to end up. And that's, I think, a really refreshing thing to say about the study of the Holocaust. Absolutely. And I really look forward to this and I'm sure it will be a great success. Um, and we shall continue to do this work. And, and, you know, as long as this pandemic is going on, hopefully our podcast will also be around. For the pandemic and beyond, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Romer, for your time. It's been such a wonderful pleasure to be here with you. Same here. Enjoyed it very much again, Dr. Valente. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Ackerman Center, please visit utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on social media to receive notifications of upcoming events throughout the course of this semester. 
You can find us on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Stay safe and until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.